Is that you, Hen? Look what I've got. Come on out. Here's a lovely... Yeah! Oh, great prince. Give poor starving Googie munchings and crunchings. Nice apple. Good prince. Good apple. Oh, boy, what a juicy apple. Hey, no you don't. I didn't give you that apple. You took it. Ow! Hey, hold on, you hairy little thief. Come back with my apple. If you don't give it back, you'll be sorry. I mean it. I'm warning you. Give it back. Come on, the apple. Where is it? Uh-uh. Googie not know where the apple. Give it back. I warn you. Come on. Come on, the apple. Let's have it. You horrible, greedy thing. You should be ashamed of yourself. Oh, poor miserable Gurgit deserves fierce smackings and whackings on his poor tender head. I was left with no munchings and crunching. <coughs> oh, stop that sniveling. I'm not going to hurt you. Now look here. Have you seen my pig? Piggy? Round? Fat Piggy. Big snout. Yes, yes. Cooney tail. That's her, that's Henwin. Uh-uh. Nope. Googie Nazi Piggy. Nope. Oh, never mind. No telling where Henwin is by now. Oh, Master, Master. Now Googie remembers. Yes, yes. Clever, sharp-eyed Googie saw the Piggy run. Yes. Right through the forest. I saw it. I saw it. Come. Piggy will find the lost piggy. Then we'll be friends forever. Munchings and crunchings in here somewhere. It's Henwin. She's in trouble. Goodbye. In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. Welcome to Verbal Diorama, episode 241, The Black Cauldron. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And as always, welcome to Verbal Diorama. Welcome back, regular returning listeners. Welcome, brand new listeners, to this podcast. Thank you for choosing to listen to this podcast. Thank you for choosing to return to listen to this podcast. I'm, as always, so happy to have you here for the history and legacy of The Black Cauldron the fifth episode of Animation Season 2024. 
Just quickly, what is animation season? Well, it's something that I do every year on this podcast, and I like to celebrate and highlight the wonders of the medium of animation. Whether that is CG animation, whether that's stop motion animation, or whether that is traditional hand-drawn animation with a bit of a twist, which we're going to come to. As always, thank you so much to you all for listening to these recent episodes in animation season. So this year, we started with Wally, moved into How to Train Your Dragon, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio was next, and the most recent episode was Nimona. But now we're in the month of February. What is a box office flop? What is a critical flop? And why does being a critical or commercial success matter, apart from the obvious financial reasons? And what if you're only one or both of those things? Surely trying something different, like Disney did with the Black Cauldron, matters more. The Black Cauldron was different, risky, and slightly more mature in tone to the average Disney fare of the time. It's often accused of being the movie that almost killed Disney animation. But there's always more to the story, and that includes the potential that the Black Cauldron had to change Disney's animated fortunes for the better. So here's the trailer for The Black Cauldron. Legend has it, there was once a king so cruel and so evil that the gods feared him. Since no prison could hold him, he was trapped forever in the form of a great black cauldron. The old king, that black-hearted devil. Walt Disney Pictures presents The Black Cauldron. Escape into a world of darkness. Are you coming? Me? Go in there? Oh, no, no, no. It's a terrible place. A world of excitement. <sighs> A world of dreams. Aaron, the greatest warrior, a true hero. And through the magic of 70mm photography and six-track Dolby sound, you will be transported to a fantasy event for the entire family. Look, look, sire, it's working. Soon the Black Cauldron will be mine. In the great tradition of Disney animated classics, now comes the newest Disney spectacle of them all, The Black Cauldron. Taran is an assistant pit keeper with boyish dreams of becoming a great warrior. However, he has to put the daydreaming aside when his charge, an oracular pig named Henwyn, is kidnapped by an evil lord known as the Horned King. The Horned King believes Henwyn will show him the way to the Black Cauldron, which has the power to create a giant army of unstoppable soldiers, and Taran is captured in the process. With the help of a stubborn princess, an exaggerated bard, and a creature called Gurgi, Taran will try to save the world of Prydain from the Horned King. Let's run through the cast. We have Grant Bardsley as Taran, Susan Sheridan as Princess Elonwi, Freddie Jones as Dolben, Nigel Hawthorne as Fluda Flam, Arthur Malik as King Idleg. John Biner as Gergi and Doli, Phil Fondacaro as Creeper, John Hurd as the Horned King, and we also have John Houston narrating. The Black Cauldron has a story by Ted Berman, that's Jerry, Joe Hale, David Jonas, Roy Marita, Richard Rich, Art Stevens, Al Wilson, and Peter Young. 
was directed by Ted Berman and Richard Rich and based on the Book of Three and the Black Cauldron by Lloyd Alexander. So the last few episodes of this podcast, long production histories have seemed to be a bit of a theme, with Pinocchio being in production for 15 years and Nimona for over six years. The Black Cauldron would take 12 years to reach the big screen and it was supposed to be Disney's new generation of animators, very own Snow White. It was supposed to take Walt Disney feature animation into a brand new era in the mid-80s and give us the new nine old men of Disney animators. And it did. Sort of. Many talented people who worked on the Black Cauldron would go on to make names of themselves both at Disney and the industry at large, but not due to their work on the Black Cauldron. Arguably, this brand new era did come for Disney in 1989 with The Little Mermaid, a huge risk for the studio and a risk that paid off in buckets. But the Black Cauldron's risk did not pay off. So let's go into this story, and it's a belter of a story. Disney optioned Lloyd Alexander's five-volume fantasy series, The Chronicles of Prudane, in 1971. The five novels take place in Prudane, a fictional country ruled by a high king who oversees several minor kingdoms. The setting is based on Wales and inhabited by creatures and characters inspired by Welsh mythology and folklore. Alexander received army combat intelligence training in Wales during World War II and took an interest in the country's culture, language and folklore. The first novel, The Book of Three, was released in 1964, with The Black Cauldron being published the following year. The movie, while titled after the second book, takes plot points from both The Book of Three and The Black Cauldron. And when Disney started pre-production in 1973, enthusiasm was high because these books were well-known and beloved with a hint of The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings about them, with the series winning a Newbery Medal and a Newbery Honour. And so the idea of taking on a beloved children's book series was not considered risky for Disney at all. Two of Walt's nine old men, Ollie Johnston and Frank Thomas, both advocated for the project. In the mid-1970s, Walt Disney Productions was helmed by Walt's son-in-law, Ron Miller, a former American football player and army veteran who'd actually climbed the Disney company's ranks on his own although his father-in-law had sponsored his entry to the Screen Directors Guild. Considering the original series was written in five books, story development teams had to juggle over 30 characters and multiple plot lines to fit into a 90-minute film. Miller's enthusiasm for the Chronicles of Prudane was seen at the time to be the future of animation, and the future of animators was all set to actually animate. But there was an issue. Miller had very little faith in the new crop of animators under the tutelage of the nine old men. An incredibly detailed series of concept sketches were created by seasoned studio animator Mel Shaw for the proposed Chronicles of Prudane project. Shaw had been personally hired by Walt Disney himself to work on Bambi in the early 1940s. Furthermore, Shaw had produced pictures that were dramatic, moody and full of possibilities. These pastel drawings hinted at a movie that at least according to Miller's perspective, were well beyond the capabilities of Disney's upcoming animators, despite Disney actively using the Chronicles of Prudane to recruit those prospective animators into the company. But let's give Ron Miller his dues. He actively encouraged the Disney company to grow and experiment. He launched the Disney Channel and the Touchstone Films label in 1983. Miller was a trailblazer who helped establish the groundwork for later works like who framed Roger Rabbit, as well as funding Tim Burton's stop-motion animated shorts, Vincent and Frankenweenie, 
and experimenting with early computer animation with films like Tron. Despite this, his leadership was often criticised by shareholders, but we're going to be coming back to that. Miller kept delaying production, encouraged the animators to work on less ambitious projects like Pete's Dragon, The Fox and the Hound, and Mickey's Christmas Carol. Vance Jerry, a veteran storyboard artist, continued to create various plots and sequences for the movie in the background. At the time, Disney was struggling with the criticism aimed at the Bronze Age of animation, an era that had still heralded hits, but the low budgets and time constraints on those projects showed. And Ron Miller wanted to be the man to bring Disney animation back to greatness again. And who better than Walt's son-in-law to be that person? John Musker would come on board as the director of The Chronicles of Prydain. Yes, the same John Musker who would go on to change Disney's fortunes with The Little Mermaid alongside Ron Clements. But Musker wouldn't stay as director after clashes with the older members of the team. He and Clements would stay to animate up to a point before they left to work on Basil the Great Mouse Detective, also known as the Great Mouse Detective, but here in the UK, it's Basil the Great Mouse Detective. Ron Miller had all of these wild ideas and crazy thoughts as to what Disney could become and what Disney animation could achieve. And he wanted to be cautious with this particular project. And he wanted the animation team to walk before they could run. But that just made people run. Literally. 14 animators, including Don Bluth, who I've mentioned on this podcast several times in previous episodes, walked out of Disney in September 1969 in frustration at not being able to start work on the Chronicles of Prydain. Bluth was widely seen as the next big thing in Disney animation. He would go on to start his own animation studio, and the similarities in tone between The Black Cauldron and Don Bluth's The Secret of Nim, which came out in 1982, are probably not a total coincidence. Interestingly, 1981 was the year that Disney finally decided to go ahead with the Black Cauldron. The mass exodus of animators caused a ripple effect through the studio. The Fox and the Hound was pushed back a year and work on the Black Cauldron halted. Losing 14 animators was half of the staff. It would lead to an almost immediate promotion of Joe Hale to producer in 1980 and he set about personally reworking the script, including beefing up the role of the Horned King a fairly minor character in Alexander's first book of the series, and he made the film's action centrepiece the gruesome transformation of dead warriors into the zombie-like cauldron-born. Raiders of the Lost Ark had face-melting, so why couldn't anything else, right? Hale wanted artists to be exploitative with the designs of the film, looking at external artists like the brothers Hildebrand and Frank Frazetta, who were renowned for their fantasy illustrations. Mel Shaw, Don Griffith and Mike Hodgson also helped to design the film using pencil sketches in a style reminiscent of Pinocchio. The idea was that it was going to be a throwback design-wise to the old romanticised Disney. Even Tim Burton also did some conceptual work on the film. Milt Carl was brought out of retirement to lend a hand to the artistic design of the characters. This would be the last work that he ever did for Disney. When production on The Fox and the Hound had wrapped, feature animation directors Art Stevens, Richard Rich and Ted Berman became involved in directing The Black Cauldron. When Miller decided too many people were involved, he decided Stevens wasn't appropriate to direct, which left Berman and Rich as the new directors. Hale disregarded Tim Burton's designs, wanting to harken back to a Sleeping Beauty-style epic, and Vance Jerry's designs for The Horned King as a red-bearded Viking character and Milt Carl's designs as a mummy character were also thrown out. 
with Hale turning the Horned King into a thin creature with a hood, with a spectral presence, shadowed face and glowing red eyes. And to bring this conceptual design to life, it was decided to go big. Once again, literally, as in shooting in Super 70 Technorama or 70mm, the first time since Sleeping Beauty, and additionally to film special holographic sequences for the cauldron born to literally bring the living dead into the cinemas. And a test version of this effect wowed those at Disney who saw it and believed it would be the thing to bring audiences to see this groundbreaking animated movie. The only problem was the projected cost of creating a holographic projection system that could then be used in conventional cinemas was astronomical. Given that, and after its years and years of development, the Black Cauldron was already severely over budget, and adding a special holographic projection system to a movie that was already technically in a lot of debt was probably not the wisest decision. I mentioned big names at Disney who worked on this film. Don Hahn, the production manager, was one of those names, and he struggled to maintain order during the turbulent production. Reportedly, the directors didn't communicate with one another, and as a result, the tone and atmosphere of sequences weren't consistent. Andreas Dejo was also brought on board. He would go on to become well-known for animating antagonists in films like The Lion King and Beauty and the Beast. Because The Great Mouse Detective was seen as the better project, animators left their current positions to go and work on that movie instead. Inspired by Tron, a young John Lasseter left to explore Pixar's computer animation department and other animators such as up-and-comers like Glenn Keane, Randy Cartwright and Mark Henn went to work on Mickey's Christmas Carol instead. The dissatisfaction of working on The Black Cauldron wasn't limited to the ranks of the crew. The movie's cast saw a number of significant changes as well. Hayley Mills made an appearance in the 1981 Disney Channel special The Illusion of Life and announced that she would provide the voice of Princess Elonwy in The Black Cauldron. But Susan Sheridan would end up taking the role instead. Something similar happened when Joe Hale announced at the 1983 Backstage Disney special that Jonathan Winters would be playing the King of the Fairfolk, King Adeleg. But this ended up being Arthur Mallet. And while there's no official line on it, it's not particularly difficult to see the similarities between Gergi and Andy Serkis's characterisation of Gollum in The Lord of the Rings. But again, that's not official. No one's come out and said that he based the voice and mannerisms of Gollum on Gergi. But it's kind of hard to see otherwise. Dave Bossett was one of the final key animators hired to work on the complex special effects in The Black Cauldron, which included the first computer animation ever seen in a hand-drawn Disney animated feature. Making the magical bauble that follows Elonwy around was one of his main tasks. It was also remarkably primitive in terms of computer-generated animation. The process involved using a generic HP desktop computer to create the artwork, printing that artwork out and then taping it onto the animation paper. From there, it went through the traditional ink and paint methods, being then transferred to cells. Completing the cells posed a significant challenge as well, particularly since the production was nearing its deadline. Don Hahn had to seek out additional means of finishing the Black Cauldron because of the awkward nature of the 70mm and the sheer magnitude of everything that was involved. In the end, he took planes to Korea and Japan in an attempt to locate cell artists. They would eventually hire a studio in Seoul, relocate two employees, and had them assist with painting numerous special effects cells. 
Huge wooden crates containing boxer cells had to be shipped to South Korea and back again, and they had to wait days for them to arrive safely before putting them together for filming in Los Angeles. The Black Cauldron was the last Disney animated film to be completed at the original animation building of the Walt Disney Studios in Burbank, California, before the whole department was moved to Glendale in December 1984. And then, just months before The Black Cauldron was supposed to be released for the holidays in the autumn of 1984, Ron Miller was removed from his position as the company's chairman in a coup by Walt Disney's nephew, Roy E. Disney, along with Stanley Gold and shareholder Sid Bass. A trio of non-Disney executives then came on board. The first time in Disney history, the future of the company was entrusted to those outside of the Disney family. Michael Eisner took Miller's place and brought along his Paramount Pictures colleague Jeffrey Katzenberg as his studio chairman, as well as Warner Brothers vice chairman Frank Wells as president. Animation didn't matter to Eisner or Katzenberg. In fact, they had talked about doing away with the animation department completely and making Disney a live-action-only studio. Nevertheless, The Black Cauldron was, at that point, ready to be screened for test audiences, and despite being intended for older audiences and Disney wanting to finally grab that teenage demographic they always struggled to entice, several scenes in The Black Cauldron caused some negative reactions, shall we say, when it was first shown to a test audience because of its graphic content, with children reportedly crying and running out of screenings. Even though the movie was two months away from being released, Jeffrey Katzenberg ordered that the film be edited and reanimated for the sake of continuity when he saw those negative reactions, and this led to an altercation with Joe Hale. In response, Katzenberg took the movie into an editing bay so he could start to edit it himself. After learning about Katzenberg's actions from Hale, Michael Eisner, the recently appointed CEO of Disney, called Jeffrey Katzenberg in the editing room and persuaded him to stop. Despite complying with Eisner's request, Katzenberg asked for changes to be made to the movie and for its original Christmas 1984 release date, to be rescheduled for July 1985. It was reported that 12 minutes of footage were removed from the film. There are hints as to which scenes may have been cut because the final cut of the movie has jump cuts and scenes where the animation quality seems to be lower. The sequences featuring the Horn King's army of undead soldiers and the cauldron born attacking and killing some of his goons, where at least two of them dissolve in a graphic way, where their skin bubbles and melts off their bodies, leaving two skeletons in their wake, are among the most noteworthy of these cuts. Another scene that was cut was one in which a man was slashed across the throat with a sword. Soundtrack jumps resulted from both cuts. Recently, some production cells of the Melting Men were obtained during an online auction, and a couple of years later, these cells were inserted into a reconstruction of one of the film's scenes, along with shots from the trailer that were present in the final film. These scenes are available on YouTube, along with comparisons with pencil sketches. While The Black Cauldron has the unfortunate reputation of being the movie that almost killed Disney, it's actually more like the movie that changed Disney's leadership and culture. By the time The Black Cauldron made it to cinemas, Eisner was turning Disney's corporate culture upside down, and Katzenberg, after educating himself on Disney history, became convinced that animation was the key to the company's success, but only if it was cheap and fast. The Black Cauldron being the actual Disney's folly gave Katzenberg an excuse to remake the way the studio worked, which would lead to the actual Disney renaissance in 1989 onwards. So, all's well that ends well, I guess.
Let's move into the obligatory Keanu reference for this episode. And what I like to do every episode is I like to try and link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves for no reason other than he is the best of men. And maybe if some of the men who weren't on this production were a little bit more like Keanu, then maybe the Black Holdren wouldn't have been the financial disappointment that it ended up being. So there is no reason he went to link Keanu Reeves to this movie. It's always very difficult with animated movies. However, The Black Cauldron is based on the Chronicles of Prydain. Prydain is based on the country of Wales and Welsh folklore and language. And I found out that Keanu Reeves learned some Welsh and also said he would like a chip that allowed him to speak more languages implanted in his brain. And this was during a chat with a BBC gaming podcast called Press X to Continue. This was in 2020 while he was promoting Cyberpunk 2077. Now, I always like to look at the positives of movies that I feature on this podcast. And it's always really important to look at the bigger picture when we look at movies like The Black Cauldron. We're going to come to the financial disappointment of The Black Cauldron shortly. But when it comes to The Black Cauldron specifically, this was a movie of many firsts for Disney. This is the first use of CG animation in a Disney movie. The first use of the Walt Disney Pictures logo in the opening credits. The first time the closing credits played at the end of the movie. This is the first Disney hand-drawn animated film to not feature any musical numbers or any characters singing, except for when Fluda Flam briefly warms up his pipes. We don't count that. This is the first animated Disney film from the canon to use sound effects made exclusively for the film. Many of the Mike McDonough sound effects made specifically for this movie, including thunderclap sound effects, would later be reused in other movies television and video games. It was also the first Disney animated film to receive a PG rating from the Motion Picture Association of America. And all the while people talk about this movie, they forget things like that, or they don't know things like that. They just know that it's the movie that almost killed Disney. But this movie is incredibly important in Disney canon. And one of the reasons why I was so desperate to include it in this animation season. The score for The Black Holder by Elmer Bernstein which gets somewhat lost thanks to the constant edits and remixing, uses the Ons Martinot, a French keyboard instrument that uses oscillation in vacuum tubes to produce eerie sustained tones similar to that of the early electronic instrument, the theremin. It produces the UFO sound that can also be heard on Bernstein's Ghostbusters score from the previous year. So the Black Cauldron did eventually get released on the 26th of July, 1985, the same week as National Lampoon's European Vacation, which hit the number one spot that first week. The Black Cauldron had to make do with fourth, behind Back to the Future at second in its fifth week, and a re-release of E.T. the Extraterrestrial at number three in its second week. The Black Cauldron's second week of release, it went down to fifth, behind new releases Fright Night and Weird Science. The Black Cauldron was re-released in 1990 in selected markets under the title Taran and the Magic Cauldron. Allegedly, Disney had plans to re-release the film in the US with that name, but that never happened. It wouldn't receive a home video release until 1997 in the UK and 1998 in the US, a whole 13 years after its initial release. In the years that followed its original cinematic release, The Black Cauldron wasn't re-released into theatres every seven years, unlike other Disney animated classics. And also, so far, the hashtag release the Gorkut hasn't made much headway. That is a joke because I have no idea if that exists, but we know footage does exist from that cut. And while I would be surprised if we ever saw the complete previous version of The Black Cauldron ever being released, 
it does have a rather large cult following now as one of Disney's underrated gems. In 2015, Don Hahn hosted a sold-out screening at Disney's El Capitan Theatre in Hollywood, where he reunited much of the team behind The Black Cauldron, including a 90-year-old Joe Hale. So let's talk about the money. Because to understand the financials of The Black Cauldron, we need to look at Disney's previous budgets. Up until The Rescuers in 1977, every Disney movie ever made had cost less than $7.5 million to make, and the vast majority had made that back times two at the very least, except for Dumbo and Alice in Wonderland, but both of those had small budgets at $950,000 and $3 million respectively. The Box and the Hound in 1981 marked the first time a Disney animated project cost more than $10 million, actually costing $12 million, but that would go on to make $63.5 million. The Black Cauldron's original estimated costs of $20 million were, it's safe to say, a huge jump in terms of cost. But those estimates were exactly that. Estimates. The true cost of the Black Cauldron didn't come out until recently, when a budget of $44 million was confirmed in the Disney documentary Waking Sleeping Beauty. The Black Cauldron only making $21.3 million domestically meant it was even outperformed by the Care Bears movie. It also meant that those working on Basil the Great Mouse Detective had to basically argue their case why that movie deserved completion, despite it being 18 months into production at that stage. Disney just didn't want to spend its money on risky animated fare. Luckily, Eisner, Katzenberg and Wells saw the potential and Basil was allowed to be finished and released grossing $50 million on a much smaller budget of $14 million, despite being then trounced by another mouse at the box office, and again with Don Bluth and his movie An American Tale. When it came to the Black Cauldron's critical reception, at the time critics were mostly positive, with glowing praise from the likes of Roger Ebert, who gave it 3.5 stars out of 4, praising it as a, quote, rip-roaring tale of swords and sorcery, evil and revenge, magic and pluck and luck, and it takes us on a journey through a kingdom of some of the more memorable characters in any recent Disney film, unquote. And he focused on how involving the story was and felt the key to the movie is the richness of the characterizations and the two best characters being the Horned King and Gergi. Also praising the Black Holden was Charles Solomon of the Los Angeles Times, who wrote that the, quote, highly dimensional soundtrack with his opulent Elmer Bernstein score and excellent vocal performances is a technological work of art, but it is the animation itself with some of the best work the studio has produced since Walt Disney's death in 1966 that dazzles the viewer, unquote. But he also added that if its script and direction were equal to the animation, Calder would be a masterpiece to rank with Snow White and Pinocchio, and called the film frustrating, beautiful, exciting, and ultimately unsatisfying. The Black Cauldron currently sits at 56% on Rotten Tomatoes. The Black Cauldron is notorious for being one of Disney's darkest and scariest movies. And it is, but there's a beauty in its darkness that's unrivaled. The score does feel mismatched in places, the characters aren't very well developed, but there's something truly ambitious here. And the animation has moments of sheer awe-inspiring brilliance. It really is a work of visual art but you can see the troubles even in its animation. Because while some scenes are some of the most challenging and technically brilliant of all of Disney's hand-drawn output, others look almost amateur. And it speaks to the issues behind the scenes. 
And ultimately, when the sacrifice of a cute little furry character doesn't stir any emotion, you kind of have a problem. Even after a lengthy production process and an ambitious but somewhat flawed final product, The Black Cauldron maintains a cult following to this day. And while Disney has done its best to hide it from existence, its legions of fans know better. But ultimately, The Black Cauldron raises more questions than it does answer those questions. Because had Ron Miller acknowledged in the mid-1970s that the young animators would face challenges, but that it might be worthwhile to attempt the movie nonetheless instead of holding them back, perhaps the course of not only The Black Cauldron would be different, but the entire history of the Walt Disney Company would be different. Perhaps Don Bluth would not have left Walt Disney Productions in September 1979 if Ron Miller had trusted his young animation team. And if that event hadn't happened, the history of Disney's feature animation division and the current version of The Black Cauldron would most likely be very different. This could have easily been their Snow White. The Black Cauldron could have easily heralded in the Disney Renaissance in the late 1970s, much as Nimona could have heralded the new era for Disney animation in 2023 if only Disney had been brave enough to fully embrace both. Disney, of course, still owned the rights to the Black Cauldron, and while many remember the experience on it and probably aren't eager to revisit it, it's worth remembering that once upon a time, Disney animators tried to make the Black Cauldron their Snow White. It's been almost 40 years since the Black Cauldron's release, so perhaps it's time to let this animation become something new. Maybe become one of their live-action remakes, perhaps. Instead of taking beloved animated movies and remaking those, why not take movies like this with a cult following that maybe people don't know so much about and remake them into live-action instead? Now I know, it's not good for profits, but the Chronicles of Prydain has plenty of stories to tell. And Andy Serkis is right there to play the motion capture version of Gurgi. What? I'm just saying. No reason. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on The Black Cauldron. And as always, thank you so much for your continued support of this podcast. And if you have enjoyed this podcast and you want to help it grow, you can. You can get involved and you can tell your friends and family about this podcast about animation season and about the wonderful movies that I feature on this podcast and the amazing stories behind them. If you feel like you've got any benefit from this episode, you could leave a rating or review wherever you found this podcast. And of course, you can find me on social media. I'm at Verbal Diorama on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Threads, Blue Sky and Letterboxd. And you can come and you can say hi to me and you can talk to me about The Black Cauldron. And if you did like this episode specifically on The Black Cauldron, you might also like the following episode. I'm only going to recommend one as a movie slash episode in this episode. But it's kind of obvious when you think about it because Don Bluth left Disney and he went and he made The Secret of Nim instead. So I would highly recommend if you enjoy The Black Cauldron and you like the darker side of animation, that is all there in The Secret of Nim as well. It is a terrific movie if you've not seen it. There's a terrific story behind that movie, and that is in episode 76 of this podcast. So, the next episode, gonna be something big, because it's the birthday episode of this podcast, but not just that, it is the fifth birthday of this podcast. In the past, I've celebrated the birthday of this podcast in many different ways. I've done different mini collections, 
Last year, I did the five episodes on the Wallace and Gromit shorts and the feature-length movie. The year before was Disney's Renaissance. I did The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast and The Lion King. The year before that was the Golden, Silver and Bronze Age of Disney with Snow White and the Seven Dwarves representing Golden, The Jungle Book representing Silver and Robin Hood representing Bronze. And the original animation season contained a triple bill of Studio Ghibli, Howl's Moving Castle, My Neighbor Totoro and Spirited Away. And I considered a couple of options this year. I like a triple bill. A foreign animated movie triple bill. And I realised it's the fifth birthday of this podcast. And why not go back to the start? The first ever episode of this podcast was on Titan AE. But it wasn't always going to be Titan AE. It was originally going to be Sinbad, Legend of the Seven Seas. It came off streaming. And Titan AE was available instead. And I'm so glad I started this podcast with Titan AE. But I've always wanted to go back to the history and legacy of Sinbad, Legend of the Seven Seas, and why it was such a commercial failure for DreamWorks, almost bankrupting them. And then I thought about other box office bombs in animation, and I thought of an absolute critical failure that everyone always cites when they talk about terrible animated movies. But it's a movie that still made a hell of a lot of money. And of course, when we talk about flops, we're not just talking about commercial flops, but critical flops as well. And this is one of the big critical flops. So, let's have fun and we'll talk about the history and legacy of the Emoji Movie. Finally, in the triple bill of episodes for the fifth birthday of this podcast, another Disney movie that Disney try not to promote as their own and one of the worst box office bombs of all time, costing $150 million to make but only grossing $39.2 million. And that is Mars Needs Moms which was a huge critical and commercial failure for Disney. So much so you'd be forgiven for not knowing about it at all because everyone I speak to about these three movies, no one knows that one in particular. But I promise it is a real movie. It's very uncanny valley and I'm looking forward to going into the history and legacy of Mars Needs Moms as well. So join me next week for three episodes on the history and legacy of Sinbad, Legend of the Seven Seas, the Emoji Movie and Marsley's Moms to quote-unquote celebrate the fifth birthday of this podcast. I can only hope that this podcast won't flop after those episodes get released. I'd always say this podcast is free and it always will be free. But if you have enjoyed this podcast and you've got value from this podcast, then maybe you could consider financially supporting this podcast. And you can do that in one of two ways. You could give a one-off tip at verbaldiorama.com tips. Or you could sign up to support the show regularly at verbaldiorama.com slash Patreon. And you can join the amazing patrons of Verbal Diorama. They are Simon E, Sade, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Kat, Andy, Mike, Luke, Michael, Scott, Brendan, Lisa, Sam, Jack, Dave, Stuart, Nicholas, Zoe, Kev, Pete, Heather, Danny, Ali, Stu, Brett, Philip, Michelle and Senos. If you want to get in touch with me, you can. You can email verbaldiorama at gmail.com or you can go to my website, verbaldiorama.com and you can fill out the little contact form on there. And you can also find stuff that I do at filmstories.co.uk as well. And finally... Yeah.
us, my soldiers. Soon the Black Cauldron will be mine. Its evil power will course through my veins. And I shall make you Cauldron Born. Yes, yes, oh yes, then you will worship me.